Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways, the radio show that takes up issues of uh, women and uh, domestic violence and uh, uh, all sorts of violence against women and all sorts of women's issues, and um, it is a with a great deal of pleasure that I, I introduce our guest today. Um, she has been very active in the areas that we're um, uh, going to be talking about today, and I think that it should be pretty fascinating. Um, Lynn Paltrow, Executive Director for the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, is going to join us, and what we're talking about today is some of these, um, I would call them atrocities, that have been performed or perpetrated against pregnant women. I've been hearing a lot of talk about uh, the um, changes that most states are are looking for to um, limit or restrict abortion, Um, but this is kind of tied in with something else that we don't hear so much about. And Lynn, please Tell us a little bit about your background and why it is that you're interested in some of these situations where pregnant women have been targeted for, um, I would call it, abuse. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Um, I am an attorney and founder and executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women, and our focus is uh, working to ensure that upon becoming pregnant, women don't lose their civil and human rights. And part of the way I got into this work is I started out my legal career defending the right to choose abortion. I worked at the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project and worked on a number of cases challenging some of the kinds of restrictions that we're seeing today. Uh, But in those days, we won a lot more of the challenges. But I started getting the cases where the anti-abortion arguments were also being used to hurt and undermine the rights of women who had no intention of ending their pregnancies, women who went to term or women who disagreed with their doctors about how they might give birth, women who, many of whom personally vehemently oppose abortion, and began seeing the connections and relationship between those issues. People tend to think that anti-abortion measures only affect the abortion issue, But in fact, what they do is they affect the status of women as full persons under the law. Hmm. I have seen some of these stories and thought that they were anomalies. Uh, The one that I used in promoting our program was the one about the uh, woman, I guess it was in South Carolina. She had a stillbirth, and then she was charged with homicide um, because the doctors or It seems to me that it's mostly governmental entities that are jumping in here, but they have to have somebody letting them know. So is it doctors? Is it, you know, medical personnel? Mm -hmm. Who is it that that is? Well, there are a couple of questions there. I mean, we actually did a study, uh, myself and Jean Flavin, uh, with the help of a whole lot of people along the way, looking at cases like the one you mentioned in South Carolina and specifically looking between 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided and 2005, so we have an endpoint, to see how many cases were there 
that we could document involving the arrest, detention, or forced medical inter- intervention on a pregnant woman, and, and in which, by which we mean the action taken against her, the deprivation of liberty that they achieved or they sought to achieve, would not have happened in, most, in almost all of these cases but for the fact that the woman was pregnant. So for Regina McKnight, um, she, gave, she suffered a stillbirth. She wanted to have that baby. Uh, she was African-American. She tested positive for cocaine, a drug she started using after her own mother had been killed and uh, run over by a truck. Um, uh, her mother had been her greatest support. Somebody in the family suggested this would you know, help distract her from the deep mourning that she was in. And when she suffered a stillbirth, that in fact was the result of an infection unrelated to drug use, unrelated to you know, anything that we like to judge in our society, she was arrested and charged with homicide by child abuse. And the jury, uh, I think it was an all-white jury, convicted her within 15 minutes. Uh, And it took years. Uh, She she was sentenced to 12 years. She could have been sentenced to 20 years. And it it took us eight years working with uh, Drug Policy Alliance, with lawyers at Jenner and Block, to finally get her released on post-conviction relief. Uh, and finally able to persuade the court that she'd been inadequately represented at trial, in part because her lawyer had failed to call any experts to testify. And this is a, now I'm, I'm paraphrasing from a unanimous South Carolina Supreme Court decision that the lawyer had failed to call experts who would have challenged claims made about the risks of harm from cocaine use Uh, that turn out to be no different from the harms of such things as smoking and living in poverty. Hmm. If you'd like to join this conversation, give us a call, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Perhaps you have your own story um, that... uh, fits with our topic today. In the case that you were just talking about, I think that, that the argument that people would use is, well, drug use. Drug use, uh, you know, she clearly put her, her child in danger, and there you go. I mean, you can't just have all these pregnant women running around doing, you know, drinking alcohol and doing drugs and hurting that person that they're growing. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, I'd like to respond in a very sort of big way first and then a more specific. And the big way is I think because of the very divisive abortion debate in this country, people really have lost sight of what it means to become pregnant. Pregnancy is a possibility, not a promise. Every pregnant woman who becomes pregnant has a 15 to 30% chance of experiencing a miscarriage or a stillbirth. And some others have the risk of giving birth to a child who will not survive from a whole lot of reasons, prematurity, lack of access to health care, and for many reasons we still don't understand. So that just by becoming pregnant, a woman is putting her future child's life at risk. That's, that's what uh, becoming pregnant really is about. And if we're going to frame pregnancy as something in which we see women as wrongdoers, as people who need to be supervised and surveilled and punished, then really there is no principled 
way to limit that kind of surveillance and punishment and control to the use of certain criminalized drugs. Very few women, statistically speaking, use any criminalized drug. And of the 4 to 5% nationally of pregnant women who use those drugs, almost the vast majority are using marijuana. And the great news that most people don't know, because the media reporting has been so misinformed, or misinforming, is that careful, ongoing, long-term research uh, has not found that use of criminalized drugs creates unique, inevitable harm uh, to children, that the risks are pretty much the same or even less than the risks of harm from smoking cigarettes. And I always like to point out that my mom smoked throughout the pregnancy, and you know, maybe if she hadn't smoked, I'd be a for-profit lawyer. But the reason... <laughs> The reality is that there are lots and lots and lots of things that women do and don't do that pose a, a statistical risk of harm that don't actually cause harm in any particular case, like mine, I hope, you know. And, yes. and the focus on pregnant women and drug use is really about the war on drugs and the harm that that war has done, not the harm that pregnant women do. The greatest risk um, to our children's health is not their own mothers who get pregnant with them and at risk to their own carry them to term. It is our failure as a society to ensure a full and functioning system, nationalized system of health care, uh, adequate wages, safety. I mean, part of what I know your interest is, is in uh, domestic violence issues. Well, it can't be that the only form of life in the United States of America that's entitled uh, to, what, to a me- human, human rights, meaning a right to a safe, uh, protected, uh, healthy environment is the fertilized egg embryo fetus. And the person who's required to provide that perfect environment is the pregnant woman who herself is not entitled to safety from violence and adequate uh, wage, safety in housing, safety in the environment. We can't provide, have a healthy society, including children, if we don't treat pregnant women as full persons and give them both respect and support uh, throughout their lives. Well, I I might be making too much out of this, but I see it as um, when I was growing up, which was 150 years ago, (laughs) um, a pregnancy was a woman's. It was a woman and and her family's concern. Somewhere along the line... um, it became society's concern. And, yes, I think it is tied in with the abortion thing, but, you know, you hear stories of women going into a restaurant and maybe having a sip or two of wine and immediately just becoming a a target for all sorts of public intervention and commentary and, you know, that kind of thing. And it always amazes me. It's like, well, this is this woman's child. This is her fetus. At what point does this fetus, does her fetus, become society's concern? Well, I think there's a difference, though, between society's concern and an excuse for control and punishment. I think that, you know, we live best when we have a combination of sort of personal responsibility and social responsibility. And I think there is a very important role for government. Um, And it's one that's consistent with the human rights model, which says governments are supposed to provide to the extent they're capable of minimum basic health care, environmental protections, uh, you know, adequate lives for people. And that has been shown over 
over and over and over again to be the way that you are most likely to produce healthy children who grow up in a healthy society. Societal concern um, has been around, you know, and should be around, but that is not the same as what we are seeing and what I think you're really describing, which is using claims of separate, entirely separate legal rights for fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses as an excuse to punish and control pregnant women and to keep our public debate focused on individual bad women when the real issues are societal, like lack of access to uh, appropriate prenatal care, lack of access to drug treatment when it's needed and not when it's forced on somebody and inappropriate treatment, um, lack of respect. We have one of the uh, highest infant and maternal mortality rates um, uh, of any Western industrialized country in the world. We're behind other, uh, like thir- 30 to 40 other countries. And at- maternal mortality, infant mortality for African Americans is even higher and the studies keep seeming to suggest that one of the reasons for that, the extraordinary disparity, is not uh, behavioral things by the women themselves. It's societal things that the enormous stress that African Americans live with every day from the lack of respect, the lack of access to full and equal participation, that they're finding that that has more to do with bad birth outcomes than any individual thing or even the economic or, uh, or the class of the, of the African American mothers. And that groups like Jenny James group, um, uh, a, a midwife wife in Florida, and I think there was some a program uh, reported in the New York Times, I believe in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, that just by treating patients, particularly low-income African-American pregnant women, with more respect, listening to them, asking them what they need, the disparities in terms of health outcomes practically disappeared. Oftentimes, when you read the media, or, you know, look at the media or watch TV or whatever, and these stories come up, you get the impression that for some women, a pregnancy is nothing, means nothing. And I've always kind of felt weird about that because I think that I've, I've worked with teenagers who have become pregnant accidentally and do not want the baby, but there's still a feeling there of once a woman becomes pregnant, no matter how she feels about having a baby, I, in my experience, she also um, experiences a need to protect that baby. Am I, I, I off base there? Not that, uh, certainly not in my experience, but first I just want to correct. It's Jenny Joseph uh, in Florida with Common Sense Childbirth. I just want to get her name and her work Right. Oh, okay. but, like, but like you, one of the first things I did out of law school, I was working as a, a women's law and public policy fellow at the National Abortion Rights Action League, and they were collecting letters from people, so this would have been the uh, early 80s, uh, describing why they had had an abortion or somebody they knew had an abortion. And I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these letters, and not one of them said, I had an abortion because I didn't care about my pregnancy or children. Not one of them, nor did any of them say, I had an abortion because I have a right to choose or it's my body, my right, the language that's been encouraged by the mainstream pro-choice groups. Every single letter 
was talking in language of responsibility, uh, of moral and religious values, of taking very seriously what it means to already be a parent or become a parent. Most people don't realize that 61% of women who have abortions are already mothers, and that 84% of all women in the U.S. by the time they're in their 40s have gotten pregnant and giving birth. So the women who are being accused of being irresponsible at best and at worst equated with murderers, killers, you know, participating in the worst Holocaust in human history, these are the very people we entrust to get pregnant, to continue their pregnancies to term, to give birth, and to do the two-thirds always of the child care and housework that raises our next generation of taxpayer. So I don't accept the defamation and the the characterizations of mothers that is going on in this country today. Well, I have to agree with you there. Let's talk again. I'm, I'm a little concerned that people may not be aware of how many times and in how many ways um, women have been penalized uh, for uh, for a pregnancy, I guess. Um, you give in your study, which is very comprehensive, and I guess we should uh, point that out, the study that you and Jean Flavin did is the Policy and Politics of Reproductive Health, Arrests of and Forced Interventions on Pregnant Women in the United States, 1973 to 2005, Implication for Women's Legal Status and Public Health. And this was in the Journal of Health Politics in uh, April of 2013 of this year. Very uh, comprehensive study. And in that study, you cite a couple of situations, five situations, that have... uh, uh, illustrated what you're talking about here and what we're talking about. We talked about the woman who suffered the stillbirth and uh, Regina McKnight that you mentioned. But what about um, Laura Pemberton that you cite in your study? Now, in this study, or in this uh, example, she was a white woman. She was in active labor at her home, and doctors thought she was posing a risk to the life of her unborn baby by not um, uh, having a cesarean section because she'd had a previous cesarean section. And so they got, the doctors got a court order, forced her to have another cesarean. And while she was in labor, the sheriff went to her home, strapped her legs together. And and anyone who's given birth can imagine the discomfort and pain that that would cause. And uh, transported her to a hospital. I'm in shock when I read this. How can this be? That's exactly the question we were trying to answer um, when we did the study, because there are no states that have laws that say upon becoming pregnant, you lose your civil rights. Uh, the Pemberton case really illustrates that we we tend to talk about such cases as violating this woman's reproductive rights, but really almost you know, every right we associate with constitutional personhood was violated. Her physical right to liberty, they came, their privacy in her home, they come into her home, they take physical custody of her, uh, they 
strap her legs together, as you said, cruel and unusual punishment prohibited by the Eighth Amendment. They take her to the hospital where, as they're preparing her for cesarean surgery, denying her her right to bodily integrity, medical decision-making, privacy in her medical information, she's allowed to, quote-unquote, represent herself. So the basic concept of due process, that you, before the government can do bad things to you, you have a right to hire an attorney, find an attorney, uh, get experts to argue on your side. None of that, all of that was dep- denied to her. And we have to say, like, where, where what law is authorizing this? And yeah. what we found is that there are very few states uh, that have actual laws that permit this sort of thing. But what happens in these cases, it's the prosecutors or the doctors, they will say, the anti-abortion laws in our state or the feticide law that was passed allegedly to punish third parties, people who brutally beat pregnant women, that those laws that, that state that there are, we should treat fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses as if they are separate, they give us the authority to take control and custody over pregnant women and deprive them of their rights. We see well, that... Yeah. In fact, in this case, in this situation, um, when she sued for a violation of her civil rights, the district court said that the state's interest, and I'm quoting this, the state's interest in preserving the life of the fetus outweighed her rights under the First, Fourth, and Fourteenth Amendments. So again, well, I, this yeah. notion that the fetus belongs to society, not her, um, uh, it, it's just shocking to me. Um, or I would, Lynn, I would fr- I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, we have a caller, and I wanted to see if that caller could jump in and help us uh, understand some of this. Caller, are you there? Yes. This is, hi, everybody. This is Rita Henley-Jensen, Editor-in-Chief of Women's E-News, and I'm such a deep admirer of Lynn um, and her work. It's, it was one of our first stories we ever did was about her work. Yeah, um, Rita is, uh, uh, has been a guest on our show before, and thank you for coming in and chiming in on this issue, which just has me in a swivet. I, I just cannot believe some of this stuff is going on. Um, jump in, help us out here with understanding this issue. Well, uh, I would just extend Lynn's argument a little bit. It is very shocking. But one of the issues we've been working on at Women's E News is an issue she raised, which is maternal mor- maternal mortality in the U.S., which is rising. And we are the only industrialized nation where the maternal mortality rate is rising. Now, what people have said to me is that in the approach to uh, healthy families, the focus has been on the fetus entirely and not on the mother's health, and that's how the situation came to be. And it also doesn't focus on race. And what in New York City, where both Lynn and I live, African Americans died nine times as often as white women as a result of being pregnant. Nine. Wow. So, 
Well, uh, so, yeah, now, let me play devil's advocate here for a minute, Rita. Yeah. Um, I have heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I have heard that the reason that statistically the United States has such a high infant mortality rate is because we try to save uh, babies at very early stages um, that other countries might just consider a, a, a premature baby and that's not going to make it. Well, I've never really focused on that, but what um, I have been told, and we can discuss this for a long time, um, is that those babies who are tiny, tiny, and in the hospital for months before they get home, they often die before their fifth birthday. So it might be a short-term and expensive um treatment plan that creates a lot more grief in the end. Mm-hmm. But again... But if we're, um, if we're counting, uh, say a baby is born at 26 weeks and right. it the hospital, is, a medical intervention is able to keep it alive for um, two weeks and, and that's it, then that counts in the statistics as uh, uh, mortality, infant mortality. When in fact, yes. if that baby were born in uh, Nicaragua or, or uh, uh, Italy, maybe they wouldn't make the efforts. They would say, "This is a 26-week-old baby; it's not going to live," and and it would be uh, considered maybe a miscarriage. Well, we I just this is Lynn. I mean, I I do think there are a lot of important conversations to have about how healthcare is prioritized in this country. So we spend enormous amounts of money in those cases and at a variety of end-of-life care and much less on prevention and support. And so how we characterize it does matter. I mean, in, some, in many of the cases I'm working on now, uh, early uh, stillbirths and miscarriages are now being called murder. Um, or attempted feticide. And so there's a lot of conversation about what we call these things, but the the basic problem is uh, a lack of respect for and support of pregnant women uh, in terms of health care, in terms of their decision-making. One of the things that was discovered is that part of the health problems for newborns came from premature births, some of which were the result of scheduling cesarean surgeries between 38 and 39 weeks, thinking that's you know, they've been in there long enough, and it turning out, if I have this correct, and people should look at the March of Dimes website, that those cesarean surgeries, many of which were not necessary, they're part of the growing rate of cesareans in this country, far beyond the number that any, the World Health Organization, for example, thinks are appropriate for medical reasons, that they were simply being done too early, creating uh, a need for more and more health care at the beginning of life. So, we've moved away you know we've we've we have very few people who are trained in uh births that are not overly medicalized if the listeners haven't seen the movie the business of being a born it's available on netflix and i urge them to do that uh but the the whole area is one that has got is being dominated by conversation by doctors and politicians and we need to hear the voices of the women Rita? Uh, um, it, yeah, well, I, would just wa- I just want to ever amplify whatever Lynn says, which is we've done some research. Again, this is in New York City. The hospital rates, some hospitals 
the C-section rate, and this is available on the New York State Health Department website, the C-section rate goes over 40%. The World wow. Health Organization that Lynn mentioned, they recommend 15% as the max. Yeah. So, and, and Lynn also well, uh, mentioned and, and alternatives, and there was a hospital in the Bronx, which is our poorest borough, that had a wonderful midwifery program and had wonderful outcomes and was shut down. So, yes, <laughs> the women need to be listened to. Yeah. Rita, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate that, and uh, I hope you keep listening. Thank you. I think I'm going to have to run, but this has been wonderful. It's wonderful to hear Lynn report to everyone about her work. Yeah, thank you, Rita. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, we have another caller, if if I may, and uh, let's just go ahead and go to that caller right now. Caller, our caller, are you there? Yes. Hello. Hello. Yes. Are you with us, caller? Yes. Hi. You want to give us your first name and where you're from? Barbara. Okay. And I'm from um, Vancouver in Canada. Oh, okay. All right. Um, a fellow fellow Canuck. <laughs> yes. Are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Okay, great. Did you want to jump in and, and join our conversation here? Do you have a something you'd like? Um, yes, I uh, work as a doula. Oh, yeah. And um, I work as a loss doula, so I support women um, during... Um, loss of either whether it's an abortion or miscarriage or stillbirth or early infant loss. So we help moms in the community find resources and also attend at the hospital with them and provide ongoing support for them. How wonderful. It's so interesting that you you call it loss doula. uh, They're they're sometimes called radical doulas here. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was trained um, through stillbirth day doula services, so and that's in the state. So all my training is in the state. So that's interesting. Radical doula. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a firm believer in doulas. I think we ought to have divorce doulas too. Um, <laughs> somebody to support you when you're going through a life-changing thing like this. Um, have you seen any of these what I would call abuses of pregnant women? Um, in the hospital, I've seen lots of abuses of pregnant women. It's very, very, it's just, it happens way too often. Um, I have a client um, recently who was due to give birth, and her doctor said, well, you have to have a cesarean. And I said, well, the only reason why he's offering you a cesarean is because that you will be having your baby in between Christmas and New Year's. And that's the only reason why. And they, you know, I like to, I don't know if refer to the book, If You Give a Pig a Pancake, I refer to the no. birth process <laughs> with an OB to be similar. You give a mouse a cookie. Yeah, <laughs> you give exactly. a mouse a cookie. Yeah. yeah, and I refer to the birth process for women who have an OB um, to be very similar because, you know, you go to 38 weeks, they tell you that that's full term. They want mm-hmm. to introduce, in, you know, induction and as soon as you're induced, you're strapped down, and then all of a sudden, oh, all these problems are occurring in your labor, so now we have to do a cesarean to save your baby. Like, how did this happen? 
<laughs> how did yeah. we get here from a normal, natural, healthy birth? So, in my opinion, you just stay away from the hospital and OBs or, you know, follow your gut and, you know, believe in yourself and just empower and educate yourself to what birth can actually be. Like you mentioned, the business of being born with Ricky Lake's amazing. Ina McGaskin, another amazing midwife. Um, you know, just to trust your body and believe that it can give birth without needing medical interventions. Wow, so. thank you so much for that. But then we're faced with this issue of, you know, intervention. If you yeah. uh, go ahead and, and say, okay, I don't want a cesarean, which actually, you know, a thousand years ago when I had babies, I did that because I didn't have 38-week babies. I had 42-week babies. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the first one, they said, well, you know, the longer it stays in there, the bigger it gets and that poses some risks. So if you want, we can do a cesarean, or if you want to let nature take its course, you might end up with a cesarean anyway, but you might not. So I let nature take its course, and I did end up with a cesarean, but I had an over 11-pound baby, and that happened to me twice. So I believe that, you know, I mean, I went through full labors with those babies. I tried to have them. Uh, vaginally, and after about 48 hours, they said, you know what, let's just go and get it. And at 48 hours of labor, I thought, you know, this sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and then they handed me a baby that wouldn't fit into any newborn clothing. Um, (laughs) So uh, I I definitely believe that, you know, this is necessary. I, I definitely believe that in my case it was necessary. I tried the other way. It didn't work, you know. Uh, I didn't have somebody telling me that I, if I didn't have a cesarean, I was going to be arrested for putting my baby in jeopardy. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was my choice. Um, and, and I guess this is the part that really galls me, is how do you, Mr. Doctor or Mr. Politician, know what's best for me, my baby, and my body? How do you know? You know, because you read it in a book somewhere? Um, yeah, and obstetricians are trained to deal with problem births. You know, yep. their job, they're trained to be specialists in their field. Like when you go to a doctor, you see a doctor because that's what they do. If you want to see a doctor about your brain, you go to see a doctor about, you know what I mean? You don't yes, go see yes. an obst- like you just an obstetrician, and I've heard um, obstetricians say this, our specialty in our field is problems. You know, like their their country for them is right. a problem, and there are countries in you know uh, in Western Europe where eighty percent of the births are uh, are done with midwives, and in the United States, more than ninety percent of births are done with OBGYNs, and and there's been a long, long history in the United States of trying to put midwives out of business. And in fact, abortion became criminalized in the United States not as a result of, or it became illegal, not as a result of uh, a moral movement, but as a result of doctors, at the time male, white professionals, using the abortion issue as a way of putting midwives out of business. And, you know, there's a continuous sort of attack on midwifery. And one of the things I always uh, like to remind people is, first of all, get to know what their work is. Uh, midwives 
doctors are unbelievably skilled and, and know things and have the patience to help women through labor in ways that don't end up needing surgery and that aren't, you know, excruciatingly painful. Um, but when you think about what happened after Katrina, what happens when your hospitals are shut down? What happens when there's no electricity? And the doctors who ha- are trained to deliver babies only know how to do it with electricity, only know how to do it in a supported hospital setting. Then you really want to make sure that you have a whole lot of people, trained midwives, who know how to deliver babies if there is uh, a crisis in, in your community. It's just as a basic, uh, you know, white, ribbon concern about you know making sure people have access to the care they need we would be supporting midwifery in this country caller thank you so much it was good to hear from a, a midwife and i appreciate your calling in if you would like to call in please do it's 646-378-0430 lynn a part of me in this conversation thinks well does do we as a culture, as a society, have an interest in babies? Do we have an interest? And, and where does that interest, if, if indeed we have an interest as a society, where does that cross over the line of being invasive? Well, that's a good question when you're talking about babies. Um, you know, we live in a country that in which... Not only is our, you know, criminal justice system out of control, but our child welfare system in many states is out of control, taking uh, children away from parents, not because there's evidence that they have harmed their children or are likely to harm their children, but because they test positive for a criminalized drug or falsely positive for a criminalized drug or uh, a case in New Jersey where a woman... uh, refused to pre-authorize cesarean surgery that she didn't need. That became the reason for reporting her when she gave birth vaginally to a healthy baby to child welfare, saying she had uh, engaged in some kind of medical neglect by refusing to give birth the way her doctors thought she she should. Um, So, but there is an appropriate role for government. Government, you know, I can't, uh, I live in New York City. I can't get the roads to work. I can't individually or depend on charity to make sure the garbage is picked up or the electricity works. Charity isn't going to educate my children. Um, so we need government to do a lot of things that it doesn't always do perfectly, but it does a whole lot better and with with rules and regulations to govern it that we can't rely on charity. And part of what government can do is ensure good education, ensure access to health care system that isn't about making profits for private industry or making sure that we have the best care for the richest people and none for the poorest. So there's a lot that government can do. And unfortunately, sort of the conversation about this has been hijacked into one just about how can we use the government power of punishment to focus on individuals who really are not themselves, do not themselves have the power to ensure overall public health. You're talking a lot about um, drugs and substances that are found in women, and that's when authorities jump in saying, okay, we have to protect your baby because you're not doing a good job of it. Uh, You're putting your baby at at risk with these drugs. And again, from your uh, website, Lynn, from the advocatesforpregnantwomen.org, I found an article about um, the fact that uh, pregnant drug-using women um, and the the risk that that poses might actually have been uh, completely um, blown out of proportion 
because of a lot of media hype and misinformation. Can you just briefly tell us um, why you think that? Well, it's uh, it's certainly a, a view that is shared by leading uh, researchers and health authorities. And in fact, you know, many media groups finally published articles like the epidemic that wasn't. The New York Times that, you know, is often one of the most, you know, important sources of accurate or at least, you know, investigative journalism in this country spread the myths about the relative harms of prenatal exposure to cocaine. So we, you know, we've had 40 years of a war on drugs and enormous propaganda uh, that just sort of keeps, people just keep hearing things that are untrue and then they haven't been urged to think critically. First of all, what most people don't know is that the drugs that have been criminalized have not really been criminalized because there's been research that they're uniquely dangerous or to anybody, including uh, future children. Uh, opium became criminalized uh, when, when we know, because it was associated with Chinese immigrant laborers who had built our railroads. And if you criminalized opium, even though people of all races used it, it became a mechanism for controlling and, and harassing particularly Chinese Americans. Marijuana became criminalized as a way of harassing and controlling Mexican Americans. And again, they're not the only ones who use marijuana, for sure. Uh, cocaine was associated with African Americans. I'm not even sure that association was uh, ever true, but it became an excuse to perpetuate a, a racism uh, against African American men in particular. So these have been tools for control and punishment from the beginning. Most people did in the 80s and 90s, you know, see the front page of Time magazine, Newsweek, you know, children born on crack depend on our compassion, uh, children damaged, rolling Stones had a cover claiming that children exposed prenatally to cocaine, you know, couldn't couldn't think. None of it has turned out to be true. None of it. But people heard it over and over and over again. The top researchers in this country finally wrote a letter to the media and policymakers begging them to stop, saying nobody's going to say that in using criminalized drugs, using legal drugs, smoking cigarettes, alcohol, living next door to uh, a place that emits all kinds of smoke and other things, nobody's going to suggest women do that. It's not healthy. But to suggest that the primary threats to children's health are their own mothers, and particularly the very small number of whom use any criminalized drugs, is absurd and dangerous. It stigmatizes the children. It results in poor health care for those kids. I'll give you an example. The latest hysteria has been around uh, uh, the use of prescription opiates. Um, part of the increase in that use comes from overprescription, from the fact that doctors are too busy to uh, provide counseling, and so you just here take this drug. I heard a, a recent uh, explanation about how people have no dental coverage, you know, pre and, they, and they get into adulthood and they have horrible dental pain, and the only thing they can get for it isn't dental care, but they can get pain meds. In any event, the hysteria is children who are exposed prenatally to opiates and even the treatment for it may go through what's called a neonatal abstinence syndrome. They are not, no child is born addicted. They may have been exposed. Children exposed prenatally to opiates and their treatment might need some medication to help them through a transitory period um, where they're no longer getting that drug through the woman's body. These kids are fine. These kids are healthy. And what they've found 
is that if you let the baby stay with mom and have skin-to-skin contact and breastfeed, these kids may not have any symptoms of neonatal abstinence. They may not have it at all, or it may be much reduced. But people are so mad at these women and so ill-informed, doctors, that they whip these kids away from their mothers, put them in in neonatal intensive care units in the dark, away from affection and association, and then they say, see the terrible things these moms have done? and see how much they cost. But so it's very important for people to think critically about when they read a story about pregnant women and drugs, and really any story about drugs, and say, wait a minute, in this story, is there somebody who's really doing research on this issue, or is it just the sheriff who gets to say what the harm is, or even the regular pediatrician whose work doesn't do the research in this area? People really have to think about what's what what information is there, some of which they can access through our website, which is www.advocatesforpregnantwomen.org. Well, surely there, there's, a, there's research, there's at least anecdotal evidence that um, babies, you know, crack babies, for example, are the famous one, and they definitely do have problems. Uh, when they're born, these babies. So actually, you're actually, not... I referred. Uh, actually, that that is. I totally understand why you're saying that. That there is enormous anecdotal, and that, but that's all. And so when they finally did controlled studies <clears throat> and said, "Wait a minute, what else is going on?" They found out that some of these babies um, uh, had been. That a lot of them had been exposed to nicotine. A lot of them had been uh, poor. I mean, one of the really interesting things is the real cocaine epidemic in this country happened in the 1970s, meaning the largest, most widespread use of cocaine was in the 1970s, and it was mostly upper-class people, predominantly white. And you have to ask yourself, where are all those cocaine babies? So the reason that the press reported these children as damaged, as costing taxpayers money, is because crack, which is just a smokable form of cocaine, was associated with low-income African-American women. And we live in a country where black motherhood, since the time of slavery, has been demeaned, debased, denied. And people have a willingness to assume that black women are going to give birth to children who can't think, can't can't do anything. And when a child of, as, as I know, I know a young woman who has a full scholarship to an elite college, her mom had a cocaine problem when she was pregnant with her. Nobody says, oh my God, she must be brilliant because her mother took cocaine. We don't jump to that conclusion. But if there's something wrong, we don't look at anything else. We just say it must have been the cocaine. So we have to put our thinking caps on and step back and say, huh, you know, my friends, I have a lot of friends with children who really have some serious challenges with learning disabilities. As far as I know, none of them use cocaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, again, you know, I mean, just like fetal alcohol syndrome, you know, if done to excess and nobody really knows with alcohol exactly when you drink or how much you drink can lead to uh, problems with the fetus, but they're pretty much... Uh, uh, convinced that at some point, at some level, alcohol can damage the fetus. Yeah, and, no, and, I, and, and there is, I will say that there has now been decades of research on cocaine, and they have not found that it causes the kinds of things that people have found with truly excessive use of alcohol. In other words, people, that alcohol can be a teratogen, it can cause. Uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, but that area continues to need to be researched because, it, it, as you say, 
you know, how much can cause that. It does seem that it, the people who, that ha- the fetal alcohol syndrome is often connected to extreme use of alcohol, extreme poverty, extreme lack of nutrition. And if that's true, then the, the harms, and, and fortunately some of those harms are they're now thinking, rethinking uh, about the permanency of them, that they're seeing that they might be uh, uh, more remediable uh, as the kids age. But more importantly, the question is if, if, if you can, somebody can't stop drinking, but by eating well, by getting good prenatal care, by being in safe environment, the harmful impact of alcohol could be, you know, vastly reduced. Well, let's do that. But what is also the research shows over and over again is if you arrest women, if you threaten them with arrest or losing their children, they stop coming in for care. They don't seek help. So what you're actually doing is in the name of, you know, uh, separate rights or the health of uh, fertilized eggs, embryo, and fetuses, you're actually making it worse. So even if the only thing you cared about were children, the health of babies, these punitive approaches would not be used. Well, and again, we come, I come back to the question of, you know, who, who, um, who's in charge of the fetus? Is it the woman for whom it's part of their body, or is it the people sitting at the next table who are shocked because they see a pregnant woman having a glass of wine at dinner? Um, you know, who, who is the one in charge, if you will? And it seems to me that um, we are very rapidly becoming a society where the outsiders, the medical professionals, and as you said, the politicians are in charge rather than the woman who is gestating. Well, and I, but I think it'll be very helpful to, to figure out what, when you ask that question, I don't think it's a question of who's in charge of the fetus. It's who's in charge of the pregnant woman. That even yes. by asking that question, we sort of buy into this idea that, that it's separate, that you could do something for the fetus without also doing something for or to the pregnant woman. And that's impossible. Yes. Ge- geography matters. As long as the fertilized eggs, embryos, or fetuses are inside the woman's body, the only way we can do constructive things is recognizing that connection and valuing the pregnant woman because it's never, you know, every time they say we're doing this to protect the fetus, those punitive actions hurt the fetus. They hurt the baby that will be born. And so what we're talking about is who controls pregnant women. The argument that by uh, that somehow we can add eggs, embryos, and fetuses to the Constitution as separate persons and sort of improve our society, unfortunately, is not true because the only way to do that is to subtract women from the moment they become pregnant from the community of constitutional persons. And that's, that's the thing that we have to fight. That's the thing that we can prevent. And we can prevent it by doing two things. One is, let's ask our legislators to just vote on the following resolution. Upon becoming pregnant and through all stages of labor and delivery, women retain their civil and human rights. Let's see if our legislators agree that uh, People who, uh, that, that people who have ovaries and have the capacity for reproduction are full constitutional per- persons at all stages of their lives, 
Let's see if they agree with that. And then let's say, let us, in fact, insist and remind everyone that we have a right to health care. And that once we have that right to health care, our maternal mortality rates, our infant mortality rates, uh, we'll see them go down. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's a very valid point. But, as uh, again, as devil's advocate, I say, okay, but isn't it uh, exposure to health care that's causing a lot of these women's problems? Because the doctors will decide, well, she doesn't want us. There was one situation where uh, a woman's doctor wanted her to have a test for gestational diabetes. The woman chose not to have the test, and boom, you know, all all of these uh, uh, legal repercussions for her. Um, so, well, I think it's, I, it was a great question, but that's why you have to do both things. In other words, you have to guarantee health care, and you also have to guarantee that women through all stages of labor and delivery are full persons. That prevents uh, the medical community for, from overstepping. And you're right, there, you know, one of the cases we documented is a, a woman who comes in, they uh, are worried she has gestational diabetes, she doesn't come back for the follow-up test, and they civilly commit her. They lock her up as a danger to her unborn child for not coming back for the second test. And this is the part people really need to listen to. We think that when we empower the government to take punitive control over people, it's gonna, you know, then they're going to do what they should do. They locked her up in the very hospital where they said she had failed to come for the second test. And through the duration of her uh, being locked up there, you know what? They never did the test. How long and was we, she in prison? I think she was kept there for, the, the, her, for her whole pregnancy. This was one of the cases that we, we knew about only from a single uh, uh, published opinion in the case. But I can tell you in the recent Wisconsin case, a woman, come, Alicia Beltran, is 12 weeks pregnant. She, she got changes care. She'd already had some prenatal care. She went so early in her pregnancy. And she's honest with her new prenatal care provider. She had, uh, had developed a problem with Percocets before she got pregnant. She was able to stop that. She was using the uh, treatment drug Suboxone uh, on her own to, wean, to, to make sure she didn't go through any kind of withdrawal. She had been weaning herself off. And, in fact, by the time she had gone for this new prenatal care, to this new prenatal care provider, she was not using any drugs. Um, and she told them about this. Well, Wisconsin is one of the few states in the country that has a law that specifically permits locking up pregnant uh, women from the moment they conceive. She goes home, and uh, the, a few days later, she, she, uh, five law enforcement officials are waiting for her. She's arrested. She's handcuffed. She's taken to jail. She's put leg shackles on and is taken to a courtroom where standing alone, without the right to counsel, she discovers that a lawyer has already been appointed for her 12-week fetus. There's a social worker, there's the DA, there's the judge, uh, all talking about her and deciding what her fate should be and ordering her, uh, sentencing her to a 90-day residential treatment program for, for which no expert 
who's looked at this case thinks there was any need whatsoever. So they take a woman who's not even using uh, any controlled substance and put her in a residential treatment program two hours from her home that does not provide the the treatment that they said she needed, that does not have an OBGYN or anybody else on staff, that has separated her from her family, and taking away the bed from a woman who might actually need drug treatment. So you have to say, how is this helping a child or a fetus? All it is doing is spending taxpayer dollars in an incredibly dysfunctional and possibly illegal way. I, I, I just call these horror stories. Uh, again, from your study, you had the story of uh, Martina Graywind, a mm-hmm. uh, 28-year-old homeless woman, Native American in North Dakota, and she was 12 weeks pregnant. She was arrested and charged with reckless endangerment based on the claim that inhaling paint fumes, she was creating a substantial risk of body harm, bodily harm or death to her unborn child. She spent two weeks in jail, um, she got released for a medical appointment, and at that appointment, she got an abortion. Well, these are these are absolutely of all you know. These are actions absolutely deprive women of their reproductive rights, including their right to continue to term without coercion or punishment. Alicia Beltran, uh, as the papers and a challenge to her case demonstrated, said, standing there alone, the only thing, the only way she knew how to articulate her rights was to say, well, couldn't I have an abortion? Because clearly, if you drag an, a woman who's 11 weeks pregnant before a judge and give state control over her body, her medical decision-making, her life, you know, the only way to get out of that is to not be pregnant anymore, which is what Martina Greenwin figured out. And we don't want to live in a country where women are coerced into having abortions. In, in Alabama, a state Supreme Court decision interpreting a, a chemical endangerment of a child law that made it applicable to pregnant women, you know, really, there should be billboards up saying Alabama uh, recommends, you know, it, it, uh, recommends you have an abortion if you can't uh, overcome your drug problem or if you can't get through pregnancy without even a prescribed controlled substance. Because that's the only way that women can avoid arrest in that state. Mm, 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 mm. Or be sure they can avoid arrest. Clearly they apply these laws in very discretionary and discriminatory ways. Some women have far less to worry about than others. But as a matter of actual precedent and law, what that court did is make it actually make it a crime for a pregnant woman to use any controlled substance, even one prescribed by a physician. Oh, my gosh. These stories have just filled me with disgust and a certain amount of rage, I must say. Um, and, And I wish that these stories that we discussed here today were unique. Unfortunately, more and more and more publicity is surrounds these situations. If a person wants to become active in um, uh, supporting a woman's right to her own body uh, while she's pregnant, if, she, if, if somebody wants to support a woman who wants to continue her pregnancy, um, what should they do? If, uh, should they uh, look up your organization? Yeah. Uh, well, yes. I mean, I, I, if people agree, if someone agrees and cares about ensuring that women's uh, personhood is protected, not just their bodies, their conscience, their religious beliefs, all of it, 
um, they should certainly uh, sign up and become an activist as part of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. But they also should be educating themselves about the war on drugs, mass incarceration. Uh, These are things, you know, people think that if if abortion becomes illegal again, it will be like it was in 1973. It isn't 1973. Because of the drug war, we have no problem locking people up, and it will include the pregnant women who have had abortions or look like they've had an abortion because they have a miscarriage. And people need to oppose so-called personhood measures, and they need to oppose the anti-abortion measures and the drug measures that are passed in the guise of very narrow, limited uh, legal action uh, because they are setting precedent for not just uh, drugs, not just abortion, not just a a feticide. They are setting the precedent to subtract pregnant women from the community of constitutional persons. And again, your website? www.advocatesforpregnantwomen.org. And we have a Facebook page, and we tweet, and we do all those cool things, too. Great. Um, Lynn, usually I try to end each show with a quote, and I found one by Maretta Leonard Lupa. I do not know who this this person is, um, but I like her quote. She said, let us make pregnancy an occasion when we appreciate our female bodies. And I think that appreciating the female body and appreciating the fetus is something that we really need to to look at in our society. And um, again, I'm, I'm... I have a lot of concerns about these issues. It does seem to be tied in with abortion uh, regulations, and uh, your organization is the only one that I know of that's specifically looking at these these situations. So I really appreciate your coming on board and talking with us today, Lynn, and uh, it's it's just been an an eye-opening conversation. I hope you listeners are uh, willing to uh, become involved in this issue. Thank you so much for joining us. Come next week. We have another exciting topic. It's three women, three ways.